Get ready to rock radio. And we're saying a very warm welcome to uh, to Chester, to uh, a guy who I remember from the golden era of the late eighties, early nineties. Welcome to Get Ready to Rock, Dan Reed. Mm, thank you. It's honour <laughs> to be here. Oh, it's nice to talk to you. Now, you've just seen uh, this uh, promotional copy I've got of uh, Slam, which goes right back to um, the late eighties. Eighty-nine, yeah. Yeah, eighty-nine, and uh, it's possibly the album that's you're best known for in in the context of Dan Reed Network. And if I can just read out some of the uh, promotional blurb in the cover here. Uh, What they're saying is they're calling him the new prince, a rival to Bon Jovi, a man with a sound like in excess, but Dan Reed is definitely the most explosive new talent in funk rock whose live act is blowing away all rivals. (laughs) (laughs) How did it feel back then, Dan, for you? Well... You know, in one way to read that stuff when you've been a musician that's been, uh, your goal was to become a rock star in a way. You know, I grew up on a farm in South Dakota listening to Cheap Tricks, cheap tricks songs on the tractor radio and, and I just couldn't wait and to be on a big stage and play in front of thousands of people. That was a dream of mine since I was a kid. So reading stuff like that back then it was definitely fed the ego and it was, it was, it was nice to read. But it was also a tremendous amount of pressure uh, that I didn't expect that effect to have come on so strongly. Uh, and that was also the time period where I, right after that, statements like that is when I shaved my hair off and, and tried to really just kind of change the direction of the network for the, the Heat record, which came out third, as the third album, and tried to become more political with that. Or even if we were talking about sexual stuff, it was um, tongue-in-cheek maybe, or uh, pointing a finger at our our uh, uh, infidelities, our uh, you know, brazen uh, promotion of just doing whatever we want whenever we want, songs like Life is Sex and Blame It on the Moon, um, those are all in the heat, but I think those were all me trying to kind of battle um, the pitfalls of what I was seeing in the rock industry. Because actually that's an album, Dan, that uh, I must admit I overlooked at the time Maybe because you, you did break up shortly after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the album, The Heat, I think it came out around about, was it 1991? One. One, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did buy your early albums, and I have to say the Dan Reed Network album, which came out in 1988, yeah. which I don't think was your first album, was it? I think there was one before Yeah, that. we did a, well, it was an EP. Oh. Um, we did a record called Breathless, which was oh, in yes. 1985 or six. Right. Maybe 86, 86. Yeah. Yeah. But actually that first, if you like, the first major album, which was the Dan Reed Network. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really a very strong album that possibly gets overlooked when people look at Dan Reed Network. They tend to home in on Slam, I think, really, as the, yeah. as the big one. Hmm. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, what do you think is your strongest album in that period? I think they're all uh, stronger for different reasons. Um, I think the first album... Uh, was quite innovative in mixing uh, synthesizers and, and rock guitars. Um, we also used uh, drum machines for a lot of percussive parts, but we also had live drums on every song as well. Songs like uh, Get To You or uh, Taming the Wild Nights, uh, I'm So Sorry, a bunch, bunch of different tracks where we were making friends with technology. <laughs> and uh, there wasn't a lot of bands uh, doing that in the, in the way that we had done it at the time. So I, I like that record for that reason. I think it's a, fidelity-wise, it's amazing, the first yes. album. Um, song-wise, I can never really comment on the songwriting because uh, to say <laughs> one song is better than the other is, 
I don't know. As an artist, you should never really get on a high horse and think your music is good. I think it's best to think that you always suck, <laughs> and that way you always strive to be, write better. All yeah. The time. Um, well, was that very much the sound of the band, even before you got a, a big-time producer and a big label? Yeah, well, was it always that funk rock sound? Yeah, we, mm. we were pretty much um, big fans of um, Sly and the Family Stone, but also Cameo, also NXS, also Aerosmith. Um, we were big rock and roll fans and big funk fans, mm. all the band members. And so when we were playing, I think it was really the sound of our band was born out of playing five or six nights a week for a couple years before we got noticed by any label um, uh, and having to play at clubs where we wanted people to dance. We also wanted people to like think a little bit about the lyrics and melodies, not just do you know funk grooves all night. And that, that forced us to be melodic and write songs and not just disco tracks or something. So that, that's where the sound was born off of wanting to play as much as possible and make the audience just, you know, get their groove on but at the same time make the songs memorable. Yes, it was very much like that. And I should mention to listeners that the first album, the first major album, let's say, uh, that was produced by Bruce Fairburn, wasn't yes. it, who, who produced Slippery When Wet for Bon Jovi. Yeah. So we're talking big-time stuff here, aren't we, yeah. in, in the late 80s. Yeah. I mean, from what you said at the, the start of our chat... You, you sort of reacted against that, which you must have lived, the big rock and roll lifestyle, the big budgets, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of promotion going on for the band. Yeah. Um, so it's great to have been through that process, yeah. but you came through it with finally the heat and then the band split up. Now, yeah. well, what was the reason for the, the breakup of the band? Was it well, any one reason or was it natural progression? I, it wasn't natural progression. It just was me coming off the Rolling Stones tour. Um, we had just done like 27 dates with them around all of Europe, and I had seen uh, the height of rock and roll status, the, the highest you can get. I mean, if the Beatles were, st were still together, I guess, you know, at the time, that would have been okay. But um, I think the illusion that I had created of, you know, where you can get with this, um, the bubble popped for me. And... I realized that if the network was to become that big of a band, um, not as big as the Stones, let's say, but big in the moment, like Bon Jovi or something, that there's a tremendous amount of responsibility and power that you wield there, as not only as an artist, but as somebody with a lot of cash in your pocket. Um, and it can either feed your soul and, and turn you into uh, a person that's trying to help the direction of of the human race, the way Bono has done it, I think. Um, or it can turn you into uh, a mansion buying madman. And I wasn't sure which direction I would head with that. Um, I, I wasn't a balanced person at the time as much as I tried to be. Uh, I wasn't into drugs and alcohol or anything like that, but I definitely had some issues with where I wanted to go with this um, newfound you know, making comments, people making comments like that, I realized, wow, I can really do something with this mm -hmm. or I can destroy with that energy and power. So I decided to back out completely and make it really easy on everybody to, uh, I wasn't either going to be a changing rock and roll or I wasn't going to be a parody of myself. I decided to just walk away. Oh, it's an amazing decision, that, really. I mean, also, the musical climate wasn't great for sort of melodic hard rock bands 
we had grunge, didn't we, in the 90s? And yeah. I'm that, sure that must have come into it. I mean, Yeah, well, yeah. we were just talking about that. Um, uh, you're exactly right. That's another reason. You asked if there's one reason. There was about five or six that all kind of folded in together. One is I was really tired of being on the road, um, living in a hotel and not having a garden or a dog or just a, a normal life. Uh, the other thing was the grunge scene. Um, a lot of these bands from Seattle were acquaintances, um, semi-friends, I would say, some of you guys. And they were all just coming up when the network was we got our record deal we were playing in Seattle and I used to see Lane Staley from Alice in Chains at our shows and the guys from Mother Love Bone which became Pearl Jam used to come to our shows and they were all uh, really beautiful sweet musicians uh, on their way up and when that scene broke I realized wow this is music this is like real serious hard funking rock music with serious lyrics and and the network had one foot in that direction and one foot in the other direction. And now I see why I quit now, because I, I see a Rock of Love TV show with the lead singer from Poison looking for his wife on national TV. And I'm like, this, that could have been me, yeah, you know, yeah. had I you, become a millionaire. Right decision, yeah. You know, um, I, yeah. I mean, I could have gone that way. Mm, I could yeah. have tried to go the Bono way, but I wasn't sure what I would do. And the grunge scene smacked me upside the face and said, Dan, you know, this, you either need to get really, really serious with what you're doing or you need to take a break. And I chose to take a break. Get ready to rock radio. Obviously, we'll come on to your, uh, your, your solo uh, situation since then. But what's happened with, in regard to Dan Reed Network? Did you ever get back together again in the time since you broke up? So, Well, we did do a, one Swedish tour. I think that was in 93. Oh, right. We played like yeah. 10 dates or 15 dates up there. Um, but that was pretty much the last thing that mm. we did, yeah. And do you see yourself ever getting back with these guys again? Um, I was just asked that question earlier. I, I don't foresee that because um, I'm not a fan of trying to recreate the past. I'm playing some of the network songs now on acoustic guitar, but only because it... People, well, two reasons. One is that people want to hear those songs. The second reason is that I'm liking reinventing them and breaking them down to their basic core. Melody, lyric, chord changes. That's it. No synthesizer sounds, no big bang boom, no lights, da 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 And to me, that um, is worthy of trying to do. If the network was ever reformed to play, um, it, would, it couldn't be for the reasons that a lot of bands are doing tours now, is to pay their bills. Um, they come out and recreate their clothes, recreate their whole vibe, the old set lists, and try to re recreate the sound. And to me, that's like... <laughs> mm. I don't know. It's like uh, it's eating really at McDonald's forward, every day. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I know what I'm saying. Yeah. As an artist, we should try to reach for a little higher ground. Yeah. So we should say at this point that um, although we tend to think of you as, the, and you were the frontman of the band, mm -hmm. you also played guitar, didn't, and you wrote. I mean, I presume you co-wrote a lot of the songs. I wrote uh, well, majority of the Danny Network songs. There was um, a few songs that were co-writes with the band members, but. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, strictly my fault. I mean, all those other guys wrote. I mean, uh, Blake wrote music, uh, Melvin wrote music, Brian James wrote songs, I would say, you know, lyrics and music. Um, and they would present stuff all the time. But I was just such a control freak at the time that I very rarely let their music in the doorway because I had just so many ideas myself and I wanted to flesh them out. And hence, that's why the band was called the Danby Network as opposed to just the network because I was coming up with 90... 
99% of the material oh, at the that's time. Interesting, but yeah. that's, you know, once again, I came up with 99% of the material uh, on purpose <laughs> <laughs> and guided it that way. So yes. it wasn't really fair to the other band members, and perhaps the network could have been even a better band had I been more open-minded with that stuff. Yes. But we did what we did. Oh, that's interesting. Now let's bring things up to date, because obviously there's a lot of stuff happened since that time. But at the moment, you're on this quite an extensive tour of the UK. Um, it, I know you've done this sort of thing before, Dan, but it must be quite a change. Or it, well, when you made that conscious decision to switch to you know, more low-key acoustic playing, mm -hmm. breaking the songs down, like you say, it does expose both performer and, I suppose, the songs, really. Yeah. How, how did you approach that when you first made that decision that, I'm going to give this a go, you know? It was very, very natural progression. Um, I started you know, writing songs in India in 2005 and progressed to writing uh, more and more when I moved to Jerusalem. I lived there for three years and the more I played the acoustic guitar, which I wasn't really a big player of it at all for during the network days, I maybe played a couple songs, but um, I just fell in love with the instrument and started writing more and uh, friends would come over and say, well, I really like that chord progression or uh, I like this song and I was, well, maybe I'll start playing out. And so I started playing some uh, political events in America for um, Barack Obama's campaign or for Progressive Democrats of America, which is a very left-wing grassroots organization that keeps the president honest. Mm -hmm. And um, so I played some house parties and the reaction was so inspiring that I decided I would try to do a, a few gigs, which was those seven shows I did in England in November. And I did two shows in Sweden, so nine shows total. And those went so well, and the reviews were really good, that I went to America and did it, did 15 shows there. And now I'm coming back here, and I'm doing like 37 shows. Yeah. And I go back to America and do another 10. <laughs> so I, I definitely have plans to have a band together and, and play these songs fully produced out live. Um, but right now I'm enjoying the, um, the freedom to uh, break the songs down uh, dynamically. I can, I can stop in the middle of the song if I want and talk. I can do whatever, all that kind of stuff. Um, but more so I'm enjoying uh, the pressure to have the lyrics and the performance of singing the lyrics to be uh, truest to their intention as possible. And you can't hide that when you're by yourself with the guitar up there. And I'm playing for 90 minutes, so oh. it's really easy, to, I think, to get bored with a uh, solo act in 20, 30 minutes if there's no different changes in the sounds. I don't have any guitar pedals or anything like that, so it actually forces me to make the intention <laughs> of the lyric and the intention of the vocal performance and the guitar playing as honest and true as possible because I want to not lose anybody in those 90 minutes. Get ready to rock radio. But it, it must be fantastic really seeing the response from the audience. And we were saying earlier that uh, I know this is the start of this tour, but I know you've experienced it before where people will come up to you and say, oh, you, know, you mentioned to me that uh, somebody took up the guitar playing because of your influence mm. in, the, in the 80s. Yeah. And I'm sure throughout the tour you'll get people coming up with album sleeves and mm. just you know, recollecting their life experiences back in the 80s and you were the soundtrack to that. It, it, yeah. it must be great for you, that. So. Yeah, it's surreal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, you I probably wouldn't fully appreciate it, would you, unless you came out on the road like this and you, you got in front of an audience. Well, you get the emails from time to time, but I think what 
I'm enjoying the most now is there's many couples I've met that said that uh, yeah, Stronger Than Steel or All My Lovin' were used as their wedding songs. Um, and now they have children. Um, to have the music play a role in their life like that is a great honor. But then there's also people coming up to me after these recent sets saying that the show, um, the, the actual set of music was a cathartic experience for them whether they were dealing with the, the loss of a family member, uh, the breakup of a relationship, um, a, a illness they're experiencing personally, that um, the songs gave them uh, a release of that tension for that evening. And uh, if it carries on for more than one night, great, but just to have it do it one night is... That's great, greatly satisfying. Now, what are the plans at the moment for um, the the new album? Is that due out this year? Yeah, it is. I'm I'm basically, I've written a lot of new songs in the last uh, three or four months, and the record was supposed to come out, and I kept, you know, postponing it, and and it was being postponed by actually the business, actually, in many ways. Um, But I won't get into that. Um, But the time off of waiting to have the record released gave me the opportunity to write more music. So now I'm going to do some more recording in July, a little longer, uh, maybe have 15, 16 songs on it or something like that. And will this be with, with a band? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yes, the record's it. fully produced. Totally yeah. yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. The, the acoustic uh, sets that I'm doing are just something that, the way the songs are written. I wanted people to hear the songs the way they were written before they get all colored up and buy the record. and da-da. So people actually, the foundation of all the tours in the future in these territories are based off of these small shows, just the guitar, um, so people have those memories of that, because I don't know when, if ever, I'll go back to doing that once we start playing with the band, so we'll mm. see. Oh, so this could be quite a unique experience for everyone, really. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to talk to you in a month's time. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now... Um, what are your thoughts on the current music scene, Dan, in terms of like, you know, 20 years down the line, you've experienced the, you know, I was saying this to somebody earlier actually, it was a golden age, I think, the late 80s for like, you know, big record label budgets and everything. Yeah. Um, what I'm getting at really is uh, how, how do things work for you these days in terms of like, you know, you've now got the internet and you've got things like MySpace. Yeah. Is that working well in yeah. your case? Yeah it's, yeah, it's working well for me and it's, I think it, it was a humbling of corporate industry in general. I think this economic crisis that we're seeing worldwide right now is a, a knocking down of our ego a bit as, as the way we've operated business-wise. I think you were saying the golden age of, of the record industry. Yes, it's true. In, in many respects, we had wonderful opportunities. Um, got to see the world travel the world, play music. Uh, but there was also a lot of people that were lining their pockets off of the work of artists. Um, and the, the stories go on and on about musicians like George Clinton and James Brown and different artists that had just never watched their, their business very closely. And, and I didn't watch my business closely either back then. I know that when the network uh, broke up, or when we actually got the letter from Polygram that they weren't, you know, going to work with us anymore because I hadn't, you know, done anything for years, that uh, there was a huge debt incurred there. And I was thinking, we sold over 2 million records worldwide. How does that not um, transfer into some kind of profit for the musicians? 
and the band as far as record mechanical sales goes. And I realized then that that industry was quite out of balance. What, what is happening now is these, you know, the record companies are seeing that they've had to change their ways. Musicians have become more empowered, um, whether it's Radiohead or Prince or any of these guys that are giving their records away for free even to go out and tour, just to have the record be an impetus to come check them out live rather than a, a gold mine for these uh, corporate executives to... Uh, you know, go golfing together. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good. I think mm -hmm. the music industry now is in its best place. It's uh, um, definitely growing pains. I'm waiting for the day when we actually uh, can send music telepathically to each other. So that's <laughs> what I'm working well, we're for. we're told that it might be possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then we don't need any no. downloads, no computers, yes. no nothing, no email, no internet. <laughs> we just... And Dan Ree will be at the, the head of that revolution. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Dan, thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah, uh, have you. a great tour. You've got loads of dates ahead of you. Hmm. And uh, I wish you well with that and also with the new album. Well, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Oh, Thanks great. for spreading the word.